may be seated. It's my great privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning, and I would ask you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us, in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word the incarnate word, Jesus, the inscripturated word, these, these verses in Paul's letter. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, and we plead now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we might understand. We do not have eyes to see. We do not have minds to understand. The clouds of our sin would... Would, uh, would obscure you and your grace and your glory. We ask that you would clear away the clouds of sin. Give us a new vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him and to trust him um, in a new way, a fresh way this day. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My mom once said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Does it bug you when people simplify things like that? Maybe it does. Um, but she said, there are only two kinds of people in this world, the givers and the takers. Aim to be a giver, John, she said. She's right, it's a, it's a good point. Um, I found out later that old Danny Thomas, some of you remember old Danny Thomas, uh, he said that there are only two kinds of people, the givers and the takers. The takers may eat better, but the givers sleep better. 
But so much of this world operates on the principle that you've got to go hard after anything you want or it will never be yours. Life is competitive. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Blessed are the pushy, the takers, the greedy, for they will get what they want. They will get ahead in life. What would motivate somebody to give and give and give? Especially in this world with so many takers. Why should you and I aim to be one of the givers, like my mom said, when so many will take everything they can from you? I think even of the terrorists uh, in the country of Kenya where we work who took 147 lives, though they had nothing to gain by that, really. Isn't it counterintuitive to give? Isn't it crazy in this world to be a giver? Won't people step on you, take advantage of you, make you their tool? Why be a giver? Well, God is a giver in the most profound sense. He has given us life and strength. He has given us everything to enjoy. I am so enjoying this beautiful spring day. Uh, Coming from Kenya to the United States in December and experiencing this winter, I am so glad for a beautiful, warm spring day like this. So grateful for bird songs, for lovely spring flowers, rest for our weary bodies after a long, hard day, animals as pets, so many things to enjoy. He's given rain on the just and the unjust. He provides delicious food. I've oftentimes wondered, why did God make taste buds? You know, we could just eat because we need to, but he has made it such an enjoyable experience. Even when we haven't prayed, even when we have been rebellious and ungrateful, God has given us so much for us to enjoy. God has given and given and given to us. We've all heard sermons on John 3.16. We know that verse, I think. God so loved the world that he gave. You know how to finish it. But it, it is a true statement, isn't it? Even if you end the verse right there. God so loved the world that he gave. I can think of few things as necessary in this world as a proper definition of love. And I think that that's a a test. You can test someone as to whether they are truly loving, whatever they may say. Do they give? Are they a, a generous spirit or not? We are motivated to give because God is a giver, but also because... God the Son came and gave himself, gave his life, poured out his life for us. 
That's what our sermon verse this morning, verse 9, is all about. You know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus models what being a giver is all about. He doesn't just give what he has. He has given himself. He has given up everything for us. He has given his life. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But this is where it might get a bit uncomfortable. Because Jesus calls us to follow his lead, to give of ourselves, and to give, and to give again, even when others may be taking from us. Even when others may be using us. Jesus calls us to follow his lead and to give what we have, to give of ourselves. There's no way that we can do this apart from his grace, his enabling grace. We won't give what we have apart from that grace. Instead, we will hoard what we have, right? We will protect what we have. We will take out insurance on what we have. We will make sure that we don't lose it. Without his grace, we'll never give especially ourselves. We won't even give ourselves to God. What I love about this text is that we see the Apostle Paul giving an illustration of a group of believers who knew God's grace and who gave in the most astonishing way. We see that grace is is something that Jesus Christ has demonstrated, has modeled for us, but we also see that God's grace doesn't end there, but it works within us, changing us, transforming us, turning us into a different kind of people. What is the context of this uh, passage that we have read? Well, Paul is urging some of the wealthiest Christians in the world to be generous. If you doubt me, you can look at verse 14 in our chapter. These were some of the wealthiest Christians in the world. And Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthians to give by telling them of the poverty-stricken Macedonians who gave an amazing offering. Look at them. Compare yourselves with them. Look at their situation. Paul tells the Corinthians that their love, their sincerity, their generosity is going to be tested by comparison with the Macedonians and their generous example. But then Paul makes his strongest argument as he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace that especially motivates us all to give. And that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, consider with me how rich he was. How rich he was. Eternally, God the Son. All things were made by him. Without him, there was nothing made. Everything belongs to belonged to him. Everything exists for him. 
He had the never-ceasing praises of all of heaven's angels. All authority and majesty and power belonged to him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He had all of heaven's glories all the time. He had perfect fellowship with the Father from eternity past. There was no possibility of his losing any of his joy and his glory. No language, no language could possibly describe how great and beautiful and powerful and wise God the Son, Jesus Christ, was. How rich, how rich he was. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. How poor, how poor he became. He left heaven and all of its glories behind for us. He was born of a poor, simple girl, probably a teenager. And it's very likely that she had just taken a 100-mile donkey ride while eight or nine months pregnant. He and his parents had no place to stay there in Bethlehem. You know the story. And so he was born in an animal shed. He was laid in a manger in a cow's feeding trough. Like any newborn, he was helpless. He was completely dependent upon his parents, struggling for, for warmth, struggling for food, um, needing to be nursed to sleep. The local ruler wanted to kill him and tried to. And Jesus Christ became a refugee where? In Africa. He was unjustly condemned. He was stripped of everything. His clothing, his dignity. And he was put to death in the cruelest way possible. The Romans referred to it as mors turpissima. The Latin meaning the most vile death. The death of a slave. Jesus Christ endured for you and for me. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. How poor he became. How very poor. That we, through his poverty, might become rich. We should think how rich we are in him. What exactly does Paul mean? when he says that we have become rich here in verse 9. What does it mean? Are all Christians rich? Well, in verse 2, it's apparent that the Macedonians were living in extreme poverty. Um, so in what sense are Christians rich? Could Paul be talking about material wealth? I think all of us realize that in the so-called majority world, we Americans are classed by just about everyone as being well-to-do. Those of us who are international students, we have opportunities here in this community that so many in 
the rest of the world do not have. We've been blessed. We're wealthy. We are well off. Um, in Kenya and other parts of Africa where we've served, we've met people, we've known people who struggle just to have enough to eat. And we've tried to help them in various ways. But I don't think Paul is thinking about, Paul is not talking about material wealth. He's not talking about economic class, standard of living, the disposable income that someone might have. No, I don't think so. Read verse 9 carefully. I think that this is an all-important point. Paul is speaking about the riches that we gain through his poverty. Through his poverty. Through Jesus Christ becoming poor for our sake. There's a prosperity here which is measured not by the size of the bank account or retirement or not by the size of one's home. It's a huge mistake to think that Paul here is thinking about riches that we possess on our own without Christ. On our own, we have nothing. This is the New Testament teaching. Without Jesus Christ, we are empty. We are broke, bankrupt. Even Christians, the moment that they begin to think of themselves independently of Christ, are in poverty. Jesus writes letters to his churches in the early chapters of Revelation. And he says to Christians who say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. Jesus says this, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's not a stretch to say that the minute that we begin to think of ourselves as rich and we put Jesus out of our mind, we're broke, bankrupt. So what are the riches? What are the riches that we have gained through his poverty? We see God. By faith, we become God's dearly beloved children. We share in Jesus' glory. We are given the Holy Spirit as our guide and our comforter. Jesus saves us from all sin and evil from everything that would shred our lives like a lion's paws. Um, my family has been within an arm's length of a full-grown male lion. We're talking like 450 pounds of sinew <laughs> and claws. The, the claws on those things. Amazing. Sin is like that. It can grab a hold of us and shred our lives. But Jesus, by his redeeming work, saves us from sin and evil. Saves us from the penalty of sin, God's curse and hell. Saves us from the power of sin that would enslave us, bind us, leave us feeling help, helpless. Not only sin's penalty and power, but also sin's presence. Those who trust in Jesus and love Jesus more than anything else 
want to be free of sin and pure and holy, not grieving the God they love, the God who has loved them. They long, they long like nothing else to be free from sin. An old hymn says, I hate the sin that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. At the last day, because of Jesus, I will be pure and holy, completely without sin to trouble me and grieve the Spirit. That is riches. Through Jesus becoming poor, heaven is ours. We are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. We will receive new resurrection bodies, free from weakness and weariness and pain, um, disability, eye trouble like I've been experiencing the last couple of years, but now uh, the doctors have put me right in the last uh, few, few weeks. Free from death, all these things are ours. We will inherit the earth because Jesus Christ um, is coming to rule over this world and we will join him. A crown of life, a crown of life awaits true believers, no matter how poor they are now, no matter how despised or forsaken they are. A few months ago, I was preaching in Rwanda and I asked the crowd if they knew about the crown of life. Um, some of the people there were wearing what you and I would refer to as rags. They, they really were poor, poor folks. I asked, do you know that you will wear a crown? And they were all just wide-eyed. Um, can you see yourself wearing a crown of gold? Can you see that crown of gold by faith that your brothers and sisters are wearing? Daily life may be a hard struggle, and you may never have much of this world's wealth, but you are rich in Christ, I told them. I then read them Jesus' words in Revelation 2, again, writing to, to a church. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. That's Revelation 2, 9. I think that this grace of God in Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, should change the way that we view ourselves. Do we think of ourselves as rich? Sometimes we don't reach out to others. Sometimes we are not generous because we don't think that we're in a position to be generous. We don't think of ourselves as rich, as having what we need to give. We can think of ourselves as poor and needing to receive. But the truth in Christ is that we have received so much. Has the grace of God so taken hold of us, changing the way that we are, see ourselves and the world around us, that we instinctively ask, what can I contribute here? There are so many uh, people out there who are thinking only of themselves, who ask, what can I get out of this? How can I work things to my advantage, maneuver things to my advantage so I get what I want? 
But those who have been captivated by Jesus and his grace are ready to ask, not how much can I afford to give, but how can I give more? More of myself, more of what God has given to me. The sterling example of this new Christian attitude, this attitude of faith, which is ready to give, is the Macedonian Christians in verses 2 through 5. They knew extreme poverty, Paul says. They were having a terrible trial. But they showed rich generosity in giving to other Christians. Perhaps they were giving to Christians who were better off than they were. How could they do that? Why weren't they feeling sorry for for themselves and asking for others to give to them? Well, verse 1 explains. It is because the grace of God that was given to the Macedonian Christians. The grace of God that is at work within them, changing the way that they see things, changing their hearts, giving them new desires, giving them a generosity that they had never had. I think that this grace of God in Christ should also change the way that we view others, view fellow Christians. Do we see them as being blessed with all the riches of heaven? Do we think of them themselves as treasures? Or do we just put up with them? (laughs) There's a story from the ancient church. Year 257. The Roman Emperor Valerian was beginning a rather harsh persecution of Christians, putting many of them to death. Especially in the city of Rome itself, there were a lot of Christians being targeted. And the principal targets in this campaign were the the leaders, the, the clergy, and also the, the members of of the upper class who had put their faith in Christ. And one of those who was caught up in Valerian's persecution was a man by the name of Lawrence. He was a deacon. He had been put in charge of the Roman church's properties that were being used to help support the poor. And the Roman authorities came to him and said, "We'll, we'll make you a deal. In exchange for your turning over the property of the church, you'll be spared arrest and execution. Well, Lawrence agreed. But he added that he would need three days to collect the church's riches. On the third day, he gathered the poor, the aged, the widows, the orphans of the church and presented them to the official and said, these are the treasures of the church. He was executed on August 10th in the year 258. According to Paul, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in becoming poor for us and making us rich must also change the way that we view material possessions, our wealth. Even if 
you and I might be what my father-in-law calls a rich man without funds. God's grace teaches me to live a generous life as a good Christian testimony, to give and give and give, even without expecting a return. In fact, I think this was Paul's experience as, as an apostle, as a missionary, really. Look at how he describes himself just a page back or so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He speaks of himself this way, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. What a perspective. Do you see how that can transform the way that a Christian, like Paul, like you and I, uh, are, approach life? I must be giving even if I don't think I have enough to spare. Why? Because God is such a giver, and I can trust him to provide for all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What a way to live by faith, confident that I have everything that I need. The Lord is my shepherd, the Old Testament saints said, right? I lack nothing. I shall not want. I can give and give and give again. What a practical demonstration that I believe I am rich in Christ that I am complete in him, that I have everything that I need in Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, the Lord Jesus, graciously give us all things? But what if you and I struggle to be generous, open-handed? We do struggle, don't we? What if we struggle? First of all, we should think of Christ, how much it cost him to be generous with us. And secondly, Paul reminds us elsewhere in his letters, what do we have that we have not received? Um, growing up, my church used to sing one stanza of a hymn after the offering. We give thee but thine own. We're just giving back to you what's yours. We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Thirdly, we're helped by remembering what our Lord Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, the riches that we have in the gospel. How rich he was. How poor. He became how rich we are in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for abundant grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not have all that we desire, but we have received so much more than we deserve. As John Stott said, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. We have received so much. Thank you for all that we have received.
and make us truly generous people. Not only when it comes to our checkbook, but even more in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we give of ourselves to others, in the way that we share with others what is most precious to us, our faith in the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.